you have a Bible, we're continuing on in our series through the book of Mark. And uh, these early chapters of Mark um, are really familiar to us. You know, they're kind of iconic Christmas passages, and especially uh, the one this morning is one that uh, is often uh, looked at at Christmas time. And I'm probably going to burst some bubbles in terms of how this actually happened in history and how we often present this uh, at Christmas time, but I hope it's not too disturbing for you this morning. But let me ask you a question. How do people in our culture respond to Jesus Christ? What are some of the reactions we get when we talk about Jesus? Some may be kind of ambivalent, indifferent, maybe say, you know, I really like Jesus. He's all about love and not judging other people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm into that part of Jesus. There may be others that react really strongly against Jesus, and you see that in what's called the new atheists, the Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and those kind that you know, we can talk about Jesus on a human level as a kind of good teacher, but when you begin to unpack what actually the scripture says about Jesus, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is one that all of us have to deal with, and one day all of us will stand before in judgment, and he is the creator of all things, then people tend to react a little bit more strongly and aggressively towards him. And I want to look at a passage this morning that we'll look at basically three different reactions to Jesus. And I want to go through there. I'm going to give you a little historical background in the beginning, but I'll read this passage again. It's one that's super familiar probably to most of us, but then we'll unpack it a little bit and talk about it a little bit before we end in a time of responsive worship. This is from Matthew chapter 2 starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats around you. And if you've come here just kind of investigating Christianity, there's a bookshelf out in the foyer that's got Bibles and other resources back there. Please pick up anything that's of interest to you. We're just really glad that you're here this morning. This is Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and this is Malachi 2, or Malachi 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were really excited. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is a reading of God's word. So here we have this story that is familiar to so many of us. And I want to give you a little historical background. Um, If you don't know about Herod, Herod was a Idumean. He's half Jewish, half Arab. And uh, he came to rule in Israel in 37 BC, and his rule went to 4 BC. So if you think 0 BC is when Jesus was born, probably not. So I didn't want to dispel that. Maybe the first bubble that's burst here this morning. He was a man that was probably a brilliant political strategist and schmoozer. He survived various Caesar's reigns. And if you know political reign in that time, usually if you were aligned with the previous ruler, often you lost your head when the new one came in. So Herod was very politically savvy. He was a man that loved massive building projects, right? So the temple in Jerusalem was Herod's big push in Jerusalem, right? That started to be built in 20 BC, and it wasn't completed till 63 AD. It was the most amazing temple that Israel had ever seen. And so Herod was part of that, but Herod also built out in the hinterlands, especially he would build up fortresses in the east. He was afraid of invaders from the east and the west in Rome. He was okay there, but on the east, he built a lot of fortresses, also built pagan temples as well. So Herod knew how to get in with everybody. He was a man that was obsessed with keeping his power. Um, He was pretty paranoid. He had 10 wives, and with 10 wives, there are a lot of kids, and then there's a lot of political intrigue in terms of who's gonna be next in line behind dad here. Um, Herod was so paranoid about this that he killed a couple of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. He killed one of his wives. He killed wives. He killed his mother-in-law. Before he died, he knew, you know, the people aren't going to be that disappointed when I die. So before he died, he knew it was coming. He arrested and imprisoned a bunch of people. And his order to his folks was, when I die, I want these people killed too, so there will be a whole lot of grieving in town when I die. Fortunately, they did not carry out his orders, and there was celebration in Jerusalem when Herod died. Caesar Augustus said, it's better to be a pig in Herod's household than his son. So this is not a man that you wanted to mess with. If you got cross with him, you would find yourself oftentimes six foot under. He was a man that liked intrigue. He was a man that liked to work secretly behind the scenes. And he was a guy that in any way possible, he was going to maintain his grasp on power. The Jewish, had a, Jewish people had a group of leaders called the Sanhedrin. There were 70 of these leaders. When he came to power, he removed basically everyone from that group of leadership that was opposed to him and installed his own people in this group. So basically, the Sanhedrin was in oftentimes Herod's pocket at this time. He was consumed by this lust for power and maintaining control 
in his life, not a man you would want to mess with, and probably not a man you would want to come to and say, hey, where's the king of the Jews, the the guy that's going to be born king of the Jews? Probably not the wisest move to go to Jerusalem and ask Herod, hey, the real king of the Jews, born king of the Jews, yeah, where's he going to be born? Because Herod recognized that he was, in essence, a usurper to Israel's throne. He did not come from a royal birth line. And so here he's like, okay, who is this king of the Jews that's being born? So that's, that's Herod. Then you have these wise men, some translations say magi from the east. And who are these guys? Um, we don't know how many there were. Um, oftentimes we say there's three wise men, right? But this text does not say that. They says there's three gifts, but we're not aware of how many wise men they, there were. The Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, said there were 12 of them. The Western Church says there were three, and they even have names later on, but all that came later. In the third century, these guys were called kings, but that's not probably what they were. They were kind of astrologer, magicians, advisors, dream interpreters to probably the kings of Babylon and those in that area of the world. Um, We encounter them, I think, first in the book of Daniel, right, where you have these wise guys that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he says, you know what, I think you guys are blowing a lot of smoke. Not only do I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream, you're going to have to tell me what the dream was. And they're like, nobody can do that. You know, we're good at interpreting things once we have them, but that's impossible. And then Daniel comes along, and he does that. But there's many that think these guys had some acquaintance with Jewish scriptures. Daniel was in Babylon and taught there probably and influenced these people, how much of the scripture they had. But they may have been aware of some of the truths of God's word there. Um, There were schools, Jewish schools, that were in that area of the world as well. So these guys could very well have had some information and been exposed to the truth of the scriptures at that time as well. So these guys come, and it's probably about a 900-mile journey from where they were to end up in Jerusalem. And the text says that we saw his star rise in the east, or we saw his star here. And and there's all sorts of conjecture about what that star was. Um, Basically, there's three kind of astronomical reasons. One would say that this was a comet, but as you look, you know, and astronomers look, I guess they can project back. There wasn't any major comets at about this time. Halley's Comet came through at 11 or 12 BC, but that would have been a little bit too early. But there was an alignment of planets that happened in 7 BC. Jupiter and Saturn kind of came together, and they came together in Pisces. And from people that do this kind of stuff, they say, okay, Jupiter represents kings. Saturn represents the land of Palestine. And Pisces represents last days. So these guys would look at that and say, hey, there's a king in Palestine that is going to arise in these last days. That's another possibility. Another possibility is this is simply a miraculous star that God places in the sky. Or it can be a combination of this, because we see later on that that star had appeared. They're aware, okay, this king is born in the eastern lands. We're going to head that way. But then later on, they get to Jerusalem, and they're like, where is this king going to be born? So the star is not 
obviously visible at that time, but then they go down to Bethlehem and they find this star that's basically moving and kind of landing over the birth or over where Jesus was at that point in time. So there's some that say, well, yes, there was this Jupiter and Saturn alignment that happened, but then when they came to Jerusalem, then God kind of supernaturally directed them to this child. And to me, you know, we can debate, and there's been a whole ton of ink spilled about this stuff. We just really don't know reality. And there's some even that say stars often represent angelic beings as well. There's some that hold that this was an angelic being that was communicating to these guys. And I'm not that much into that camp just because it seems like they're astrologers that are looking to the heavens and they see this kind of sign in the sky and they're saying, okay, there's something significant that's happening and we're going to go investigate this. And it was probably a whole entourage. You know, these guys are coming They've got some pretty nice treasures with them, and you don't travel that route alone without some protection. And when they go into Jerusalem, it says, man, all Jerusalem is troubled. It's like, what in the world's going on here? Here's this probably fairly large caravan coming in from the east, and they're saying, you know, where's the one born king of the Jews? And then you have another group, the chief priests and the scribes. These are the Jewish religious leaders. Many of these probably appointed by Herod or guided into their positions um, by Herod. The, uh, the scribes are those that were experts in the Jewish law. And oftentimes in scripture you'll read and I'll, I'll call them the lawyers, right? Um, so these were the lawyers of that day. I don't know if they had the same reputation as lawyers in this day, but the reality is that these are the experts that Civil law and you know, religious law were governed by these guys. If you had a case, it would come before them. They were experts in the law. They could probably, from memory, recite all of the Torah and probably most of the Old Testament. These were the experts, and that's why Herod calls them in. He says, hey, where is this, this Messiah going to be born? And they know immediately, oh, that's Bethlehem. Several other things that I think we need to know that were kind of in the air at this time. Um, there was a strong belief that astral events or events in the heavens kind of portended events on earth. So if there was a comet that showed up, that often meant there was going to be a change in leadership and someone was going to die. And so many people believed in this, that often the current leader would kill somebody else that was a high-ranking official, so the person that died was not him, but the guy that he killed. So people believed that the stars were communicating certain things about how life on the planet was running. Also important were dreams for guidance and, and direction, and we see that showing up here as well. And we see, you remember when Pilate's wife Jesus is before Pilate and she has this disturbing dream and say, that guy's innocent, don't, don't mess with him. So people were very used to kind of hearing God's communication through dreams. And then there was also a common kind of belief in the Middle East at this time that there was going to be a, a ruler that would arise out of Palestine, out of this area. And this is what... Um, Suetonius, a, a Roman historian, writes in the first century, quote, throughout the whole East, there had spread an old and persistent belief. Destiny had decreed that at the time, at this time, men coming forth from Judah would seize power and rule the world. 
So that's kind of in, in the mix as well. So Herod is aware probably of all this kind of stuff that's going down. And here are these people that come from the east, that part of the world that he was most fearful of coming and attacking. They come in to his town, to Jerusalem, to the headquarters and say, hey, where's the one that's born king of the Jews? The real king of the Jews, where is he? And so Herod responds, and I want to look at the three responses in this passage, and the first is of, of Herod. And I think that's the response of many people who feel Jesus is a threat to their personal kingdom and their power and their control of their own life. Again, Herod feels threatened right away. Okay, where's the one that's born king of the Jews? Herod dies in 4 BC, so this is probably 6 or 7 BC, so he doesn't have a lot longer, but he's this paranoid guy that for his whole life has had to look around his back and his shoulder and say, okay, who may be trying to usurp my throne? And he wasn't a very nice guy, so if anybody even looked remotely like they'd be in that position, he would just ax them. And they may just drown. One of his competitors drowned in a very shallow pond. It's, it's terrible when those things happen. When I think of Herod, I think of Vladimir Putin a little bit. If you read about Putin, it's like, well, people that oppose him, they just kind of disappear, or they end up in jail, or they get really sick, or somehow they ingest a lot of poison and have to be life flighted to Germany, and then they go back to Russia, and then they get imprisoned, and you know, you never know what's going to happen in prison. Some bad things really happen there. It's really unfortunate, right? So Herod is that kind of a leader. And the scriptures tell us here that when he heard this, verse 3, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When you're grabbing power for yourself and wanting to maintain control when something threatens that, life is troubling, right? Because you've got to control all these things and there's all this pressure outside. Who wants what I've got? And if the Lord hasn't put you in that position, there's this constant, I got to keep hold of this and I got to do whatever I can. And so when he hears about this king born, he's troubled. It's like, how am I going to deal with this? So he calls the Magi in secretly. He doesn't want the scribes and the rulers of Israel. He calls them in secret. He says, hey guys, you know, when you find this child, you know, I really want to go and worship him as well. So you come back, you tell me where he is, and I'll go down there, and then I'll worship him as well. And that word worship can be used of in terms of worshiping a God, but it also can be used of just kind of acknowledging a king and kind of honoring a king in that way. But in Matthew, he almost exclusively uses that for worship of God. And so when you see in Scripture that a human being is tempted to worship an angelic messenger, usually like, no, 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 don't worship us. And here there's no comment that don't worship Jesus. They go and they worship Jesus, and it is a positive thing. And whether they were doing more than they understood at that time, they thought this was just the king of the Jews, or they recognized somehow through their prophetic words that this was the very son of God, they went and worshiped. So Herod's plan was, okay, these guys can go find the child and then come back, and then they'll tell me, 
And then maybe I can send just a couple special forces guys down there, and then, oh, it's so terrible that baby died of SIDS. As they sneak into the house and just take care of that child and none of the Jewish leaders would have to know about it and things would just be done and it wouldn't be troubling. There's some that say, oh, this can't be historical because Herod didn't send a whole gang of his entourage down there to do that, but he's good at using treachery, so he wants to keep this on the down low for now and he figures out a plan. Yeah, they'll come back, they're going to tell me, and then we can just eliminate this child quietly. I think that was probably his plan. Jesus' very existence threatened Herod because Herod was committed to being king and ruler of his own life and of the lives of those around him. And I think today there are some people that try to destroy and try to eliminate Jesus because he is a threat to their being in control of their own lives. And I think probably there's a little bit of Herod in all of us, right? I came to Christ later in life and there was a time in my life where I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I will determine what is good and what is right in my life and I don't want anybody telling me because I am on the throne of my life. And when Jesus comes into someone like that's life and all of a sudden says, no, where's the one that's legitimately the authority? You're just a human being, right? And as you walk through life, you realize, man, when there's two kings or a king and queen that come into conflict with one another, it's difficult, right? Because we both want to assert our authority. And here Jesus is challenging Herod's authority. And he wants to destroy Jesus because Jesus is a threat to him ruling and reigning. So if you're here this morning and you just really like to scoff at Jesus or there's all sorts of stuff now, you know, it's really hip to deconstruct your Christian faith right now and just criticize and there's a whole bunch of clever stuff on YouTube and all that kind of stuff that if you just listen on a superficial level, there's enough fodder. It's like, I don't have to do any of that. And I think that's the way that often people try to murder Jesus in their minds today. Oh, there's this some really good sound and stuff. None of this nonsense ever took place. And instead of literally looking and investigating, yeah, is there some reality here? We just accept that. Why? Because it fits our desire to maintain the rule of our own lives. So I think there's a lot of people today that respond like Herod, but probably not near as many as respond like the religious leaders. It says, assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, or so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. They knew exactly the right answer. They knew the scripture. They knew exactly where the Christ was going to be born. And you would think, okay, there's a group of eastern wise men that have traveled 900 miles with a caravan coming into Jerusalem, and it says all of Jerusalem was troubled. They're disturbed. What in the world is going on here? You would think they would be pretty excited about, wow, they're saying that there's one born the king of the Jews, and we know exactly where that's going to be. That's going to be in Bethlehem. Hey, Magi, you mind if we tag along with you to go down? It's seven miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. 
Seven, it's not, you know, it's not even a two-day walk. It's a half a day's walk down there. And if they've got donkeys, they're rich, they probably do. It's even shorter than that. But they don't go. They knew all the right answers. They knew scripture. But they were just somewhat apathetic or indifferent to Jesus himself. And I wonder why that is. And I don't know. But we know as we read scripture that these folks really knew their Bible. And Jesus said, man, you search the Bible up and down, but you refuse to come to me for life. And I don't know, I think there's just, for some of us, we like to keep Jesus at a comfortable distance. We know some facts, we've maybe been in church, we can recite the stories, we can give right answers out of scripture, but maybe we've never really come to Jesus and bowed the knee before him. We can talk the religious talk, and we may like to talk the religious talk, talk the theory, we can talk the theory till we're blue in the face. But oftentimes there's something more important in life than really going and bowing the knee to Jesus and worshiping him. And I don't know what the issue was with these guys. Maybe they were in pretty comfortable positions, right? And they realized, man, life is just pretty good for us. And if there's a new king, that's, we know what Herod's like, it's going to really upset him and it's going to create problems. And so if we align with this new king, it may get really dicey for us with the old king. So this may impact my job. It may impact my social connections. It may impact how people think about me or what my future looks like. And though I like to give answers and though I can spout Bible, I don't really want to be that closely aligned with Jesus that he messes with these certain areas of my life because I've got a lot more to achieve. I'm there, but maybe there's a couple more rungs on that ladder that I want to climb up and get to that place. And Jesus may interfere with that a little bit. Or they may just be indifferent. Life's just too busy, right? I just don't have the time. I'm just not into this Jesus thing that much. Yeah, yeah, I know, but, you know, I just, there's more important things for me to be doing. And you guys go, you find out that stuff, and Jesus will be at a comfortable distance, and if I ever really need him, then maybe I can associate with him. But he's not really worth the effort to pursue at this point in time. And these are not people that are violently or aggressively opposed to Jesus. Sometimes they're like, yeah, I'm pretty cool with Jesus. But it's that Jesus is just not that important to them. They want Jesus kind of in a close proximity, but not really in their lives. They want to kind of adopt what they want from Jesus, but this whole thing about bowing down and worshiping him, no, it... I like the good teacher parts of Jesus and I'll determine what Jesus teaches me. And it's amazing as you look at the world today and they 
shape Jesus into the mold. It's amazing how when they shape him, Jesus is like exactly what their theology and their political ideology and social ideology becomes. Like, well, Jesus was this and this and this. Well, that's amazing. He's exactly what you already believe. And one of the challenges with Jesus is that he shakes all of our worlds up. And it's not just those that are, I'm gonna be on the top no matter what. I hate this Jesus. I'm gonna fight against him with everything I've got. And whether that's secretly or overtly, it's just, uh, just Jesus is gonna mess my life up too much. And I'll just stay at a distance for now. And then we have the Magi. And amazingly, these guys are the hero of the story. And if you knew Jewish culture, what were the Jews not supposed to do? They weren't supposed to look at the stars and they weren't supposed to be involved in magic. And here we have these Eastern pagan guys that are coming into town. They've traveled 900 miles. It's cost them significantly probably in terms of resources and time. We don't know what their jobs were that they had to leave behind at home exactly, but this is a serious commitment to finding this king of the Jews, but they were willing to do it. To me, this is one of the things that convinces me that this stuff isn't just made up. Because if I'm a Jew writing this stuff, I'm not gonna present <laughs> these Babylonian or Persian magi as the hero, the only ones that really get it. And to have my chief priests and scribes just saying, I just, we're not that interested right now. So these guys are the hero, and I think you see kind of Matthew's got this beautiful way, and he doesn't do it so overtly, but saying, you know what, Jesus loves all people, Gentiles included, and then that first chapter that we looked at, and we saw that Yahweh saves is coming, and he's gonna save his people from their sins, and if you look back at the genealogy, it's the genealogy of the Jewish line up to Abraham, and you're like, yeah, he, he really likes his people, but then we looked at the fact that there were four women in that genealogy, which was unusual, and all four women were Gentiles, and you're like, whoa, maybe his people is a little bit bigger as a Jew than just thinking it's my people. And here we have these pagan astrologers that are coming, and they're the ones that recognize and go to acknowledge that Jesus is the King, the Christ, the anointed one to come. And again, we're not exactly sure what these guys saw. We talked about that already. But the reality is that God communicated to them in a way that they understood so much so that they were willing to make a pretty arduous journey. You know, And it's not like, okay, you get in your car and you drive there or you hop a plane and it's like, okay, it's 900 miles through a lot of really barren, not fun terrain to go through. Yet they were willing to do that and they get there. It's interesting in Acts 17, you don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there and just read it. Paul is giving a message to leaders in Athens. And he says this. Let's see. I'll start in verse 23. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So what is Paul saying there? That God in even pagan religions sometimes gives some truth so that people will seek God. And here we have these astrologers that think, okay, God communicates through the stars and we see this star and in that we are gonna go find the king of the Jews. I used to do campus ministry and there was a guy, Troy, in my campus ministry that came to Christ. And he, is, he and his girlfriend at the time, we were in Boise and this was the time when the New Age movement was huge. And see, she managed the New Age bookstore in Boise and Troy was really into the New Age. And we just started reaching out and connecting with Troy and Troy would meditate a lot. And we'd shared the gospel with Troy and then in one of his meditations, he was cleaning out his chakra system. I'm not sure what that is, but I guess it's these supposed energy centers in your body and he was going through that and he told me some amazing stories of what happened in his meditation. You know, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light often. But in this particular thing, when he was going through and cleansing these, and I don't know how you cleanse them, he said, Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you doing that? I can clean up all your chakra systems. And it's like, I think Troy was really searching. He wanted truth and God used even this craziness that he was involved in. I'm not advocating going and cleaning your chakra system or anything like that, but people who are away from God, God loves and he wants to communicate with them and often does it in ways that are kind of unique and different. We hear stories and Bob mentioned this morning of Muslims in the Middle East and in Africa, often having dreams and visions about Jesus and this direction, go talk to this person because this is who God really is. God can work in those ways and God has a heart from people outside of our communities and oftentimes in very creative ways he reaches out to them and here were these guys and they seem to be genuine seekers and so God communicates some truth and he says, go, go to the East find this one born king of the Jews and they go and they find him and the star appears again and they rejoice with exceeding joy. Compare that to the response of Herod and to the response of the scribes. Like whatever. <laughs> Seven mile, that's just, well, way too long a walk. I've got a tea time at four. I just cannot make it there. And so they go and what do they do? They bow before him and they worship. And again, I think they're doing more than they even know at this point in time, but then they bring gifts to Jesus, gold and frankincense and myrrh, valuable gifts that they are giving to this newborn king of the Jews. Of all the people, they're the ones that recognize who this Jesus really is. And they honor him and they worship him and they give their treasures to him. And I think it's really neat. We'll look next week that soon after this, they're warned in a dream, right? Don't go back to Herod. It's not a good thing. So they head another way, probably taking a longer journey home, but willing to obey. And now Herod gets really, really ticked off, right? And he sends his henchmen down 
to Bethlehem to kill all children under two years of age. Why two years of age? Remember Herod asked them specifically when that star appeared. So I think that star appeared in the east where they were and they realized, okay, a king's been born. All right, we're going to go see. So we got to plan the journey and we finally get there. And so Herod calculates this and says, okay, if the child was born at this time, then he's probably this old, maybe a year and a half or so. We're going to just be safe and we're going to kill everybody under that. Bethlehem at this time was 1,000, 2,000 people, so there were probably 25 to 50 kids in that age range that were killed because of his murderous desire to maintain power and control. And so you see these various responses to Jesus in this passage. So who do you most relate to this morning? Are you aggressively opposed to Jesus because if you really acknowledge him, he's a threat to maintaining that lordship of your own life? You want to be king and in control? Are you kind of ambivalent or apathetic about Jesus? You may know a lot of Bible trivia, but you've never really acknowledged him as your king and your lord and really worshiped him. Because that may disrupt something in your life. Your plans, your future, the direction that you want to go. Because that's what you think is going to provide you with life. Are you seeking Jesus like the Magi? And you realize, man, this is going to cost something. This is a long journey. (laughs) He wants my treasure. He wants all of my life. But I want to tell you this morning that there's a bunch of people in this room that will tell you despite the cost, the journey to Jesus is so worth it. The peace and the joy that he brings. Imagine being in Herod's head. Imagine constantly having to look behind you and wondering, man, who's going to come and try and stab me in the back or stab me in the front? And then so many people just, okay, I want a little bit of Jesus It makes me feel somewhat okay, but I also think there's a deep dissatisfaction there as well. Because we realize that, you know, all the stuff we pursue and all the stuff that we think, man, I've got to have this to have life. You realize the older you get, and I'm getting older, that, you know what, all that stuff, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's like, it all goes away. What is really significant? What is really lasting? What is really important? And what the Magi would say would be knowing Jesus, acknowledging who he is. So I'm going to just leave you with that. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up now and we're going to respond to him in worship. But to me, don't play games with God. He's worth everything in our lives. I often say if Jesus is worth anything, he's worth everything. If he really is the son of God, he really deserves our worship, our willingness to go and bow at his feet and say, you are the king of kings and Lord of lords. You created all things. You've designed me. You've built me. You know how I best function in life and I'm gonna follow you. I made that decision in 1985. And God has been faithful to me every year. Has it always been easy? No. 
But Jesus doesn't promise it's going to be easy. Sometimes it costs. But what is important that it's really, really good. And Jesus will not let us down. And everything else in life will. One day. There was a hearse that just pulled up in front of our neighbor's house yesterday. And I brought the gurney out, draped in a flag, and put it in. And this poor wife was weeping at the door. And he's like, you know what? That's the reality for all of us. But you know what? As believers, we have a hope that lasts beyond the grave. And that hope comes when we acknowledge Jesus and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord and master of my life. And I'm so far away. And you look at these magi, they didn't do any of the right stuff. Yet Matthew's saying, these are the guys that got it. And these are the guys that God will accept, that God will never cast you out if you come to him. Regardless of your background, regardless of what you were into, if you will go and acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he says, welcome to the family. Let's begin to work on stuff in your life. Not work on a lot of stuff in your life so then Jesus will accept you. No, go to Jesus, say, I'm a messed up, what did you say, scumbag? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's reality of me without Jesus. And me with Jesus, it's a totally different picture. And that's a really, really, really good thing. And there are a lot of people here who have experienced that, and I want you to experience that as well. Make the 900-mile journey. Don't fight back against Jesus. Maybe you don't have to make a 900-mile journey, but at least make a seven-mile journey to acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. Let's worship him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords.